and welcome back to Making Sense of Money. I'm Andrea Pellegrini, one of your hosts. Last episode, we talked about conscious credit with our friends Kamaya Wallace-Bichard from University of Illinois Extension and Natalie Daniels from DePaul University. It was really a great conversation about not just what credit is, but what credit means for you and how it can impact your life. If you missed it, make sure to check it out. And I'm Jake Hamilton, one of your other co-hosts. This week, we're going to be taking a look at a subject that's probably pretty notable for a lot of our listeners, student loans. Student loans and student loan debt have become a growing need for students and their families to access higher education. And to talk about this important subject with us this week is my colleague at IDFPR, Brad Fletcher. Brad is the manager of our consumer services and student loan servicer, uh, and also our student loan servicer manager. And he oversees the regulation of student loan servicers in Illinois. Brad, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Hi, good afternoon, Andrew and Jake. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here today and glad to discuss uh, one of the hot topics out there in the, uh, in the news cycle. So um, I've been with the IDFPR now for about two and a half years. Uh, I was brought on to actually start our student loan servicing program. So uh, I've been here since day one uh, when it comes to our program. So it's been interesting and it's one of those one of those uh, things that, that uh, just keep evolving over time. And, you know, it's always something new that, that definitely comes up from day to day. Thank you so much for joining us, Brad. I'm really excited <laughs> about getting your expertise on this very <laughs> difficult topic. So I'm going to set things up with some of the statistics out there on student loans. And there are a lot of statistics <laughs> surrounding student loans and student loan debt. So I'm just going to summarize. And for the nerds out there like me, we will put all of the citations in the show notes. They are gonna be beautiful, it's gonna be great. But I wanna just highlight a few really important things to know. There are over 45 million people that have student loan debt and the average balance is $37,691, including both federal and private education debt. Though the vast majority of that is federal, the total amount of student loan debt in the United States surpassed 1.7 trillion this past December in 2020. Average cumulative debt for graduate degree seekers could be anywhere between 50 and $150,000. I'm not gonna talk about like the state of deferment and default right now since we're kind of in this weird limbo um, with payments and interest being paused due to the pandemic, but historically anywhere between 10 and 11% of borrowers are 90 or more days late on payments, even before the pandemic hit. Since we're in Illinois, I wanna just focus on data for our state a little bit. Uh, over 60% of bachelor degree recipients in 2018, 2019, uh, just in the state of Illinois, took out education debt with an average of $29,666 between both federal and private loans. The typical monthly payment on student loan debt is anywhere between $200 and $299 a month for those that are making payments. Not everybody is making payments. Right now, very few people are making <laughs> payments thanks to uh, some of the legislation out there. It will take many borrowers anywhere between 10 and 30 years to repay their student loan debt as things are right now. And many student loan borrowers have struggled to make payments in the past. Um, that 10 to 11% of borrowers being 90 plus days late on student loan payments is evidence of that. However, there are many different payment plan options and protections available. It's just sometimes a little bit difficult to navigate them, especially when you're in a financial crisis. So that's why we're very glad that Brad's here today. <laughs> and I know that we're starting off with a lot of really scary statistics about student loan debt. But I would also like to point out that these loans make access to education possible for millions of individuals. I'm one of those examples of if I had not had student loans to pay for school, I would not be on this podcast today because I would not have been able to go to school. So that's just a summary of student loan debt and the impact that it makes on access to education, as well as some of the financial hurdles that it provides consumers. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. That's a uh... It's obviously a lot to chew on. That's a, that's a lot of statistics. And I also fall into the category of people who utilize um, student loans to get, uh, to get my bachelor's degree. And it's still something that I'm paying off today. So it's, 
there's a lot of people out there who are familiar with this subject. Uh, but let's dive into it. Uh, and I, I want to start off with just something like really basic that we should probably just cover, get like our definitions out of the way. I know we like to do that. But so, Brad, what is a student loan and how is it similar or different to other types of loans like that people may be more familiar with, like a home or auto loan? Sure. So simplest terms is a student loan is a type of loan designed to help students pay for post-secondary education and the associated fees such as tuition, books and supplies, and living expenses. So Congress sets federal loan rates each spring off the 10-year treasury note. Uh, private lenders have their own formulas. Student loan interest rates are typically higher than those of the 30-year fixed-rate fixed mortgages. The, bank, uh, the bankruptcy code treats student loans debt differently from most other forms of consumer debt, such as credit cards and medical bills. Borrowers must generally prove that they have a undue hardship in order to discharge their student loan debt and bankruptcy. Uh, these restrictions initially only applied to federal student loans, but were subsequently expanded to cover private student loans following the passage of a 2005 bankruptcy reform bill. But with all that being said, uh, there, there has been recently more and more court, or, uh, more and more court uh, decisions recently that have actually started coming out in favor of of consumers when it comes to student loan debt, uh, which has been uh, somewhat promising because initially before, if you, you know, when it comes to home and car loans, you know, I guess in a home and car loan, they can just basically come take your car, they can take your house, but, you know, they can't really take your student loan or your actual education because, you know, you did it. You, you can't really come back and take that from you. But, so basically, you were just stuck with that debt forever and ever. Now they're starting to loosen up those restrictions and they're starting to say that you can actually somewhat, you know, you, that bankruptcy uh, proceedings are starting to come in favor of the consumers nowadays. We actually talked about how um, there's no collateral for student loan debt during mm -hmm. our credit episode, last episode. So it's, yeah, it's they interesting. Can, they can take your degree. They can take the piece of paper but they can't take what you learned at school, so. Good or bad. <laughs> That's true. So there are many different types of student loans available to consumers. Like we just talked a little bit about federal loans, um, but there's also state loans in some cases. Uh, they're not in Illinois, but in some states. There's also private loans and institutional, or, or sometimes they're called campus-based student loans. So Brad, can you tell us the difference between public or let's specifically say federal and private student loans when it comes to repayment options and borrower protections? Yeah, so basically when it comes down to it, so like a federal loan is basically a loan that is given to you from the federal government. You know, roughly anywhere between 85 to 90 percent of all student loans issued out there nowadays are, are actually federal loans. A private loan uh, is, uh, you know, it's 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 a loan that's given to you either from like a bank, a credit union or any kind of online lenders that are actually out there offering loans to you. So say your say your bill is one hundred thousand dollars for your actual school, for, for all your school uh, tuition and everything. So if $90,000 of that is taken away in federal loans, you still have that $10,000 that you have to accommodate some way or another, whether you, know, you just pay the $10,000 up front or whether you have to take out another loan. So basically the private loans are, is the best way used to actually fill the funding gaps that are not being able to, to be used from the actual federal loans. There's, there's more protections when it comes to the federal loans than there are when it comes to the actual private loans. Some of the more protections for the federal loans, you can get into uh, repayment plans. There's different. There's lots of different kinds of repayment plans, um, but a lot. Some some of the more protections uh, are the repayment plan options that you're able to, whether it's like an income-based repayment plan, or whether it's a pay as you earn plan. Uh, there's there's a lot of those different uh, items that are actually able to do that. And so if 
let's say someone is eligible for both and has really good credit, mm-hmm. what consideration should they pay attention to for the pros and cons of, of private versus federal loans? I mean, some of the, I mean, obviously one of the pros from this past year alone, just, just from, you know, during this whole COVID period was part of, I mean, uh, when the CARES Act was passed, you know, um, all the federal loans that were, that were all lumped in together, you know, they were able to have the zero interest and, you know, you know, the actual consumers were not actually, they didn't, they didn't have to make payments if they did, you know, if they were not able to. So, I mean, mm-hmm. that is one of the, you know, that's, that's one of the biggest, you know, advantages right now of actually having federal loans. So, you know, because right now your student loans are being charged 0% interest and, you know, you are not being mandated to make payments. I mean, that's a huge, you know, ordeal right now that, it, you know, if they can do that for my house payment, that'd be great. You know, I'd, I'd like to make a case of my house, but, <laughs> I mean, but, uh, no, I mean, that's, that's one of the bigger things, you know, there are a lot of protections when it comes to federal loans. One, when it comes to federal loans, usually the interest rates are, are usually better when it comes to federal loans. Sometimes the private loans could be better. You know, if you, if you have really good credit, you, you can sometimes get better interest rates with the, with the private loans, but it's not always guaranteed. Yeah, I um, think, sorry, go ahead. No, no. And, and one of the other things is that on, on private or on federal loans, uh, you always have that six month grace period from the time that, that you graduate until the six months after you graduate to when you're actually mandated to start making payments. Most times on the private loans, they don't, uh, they don't actually offer you that, uh, that grace period, but if they do, they still may be charging you interest during that whole time as well. So, whereas when it comes to federal loans, you just have six months of no payments, no interest being charged. And it's just, you know, Hey, six months from this day, you, you have to start making payments. So. I think one of the other benefits to um, federal loans is that you have more flexibility, like you said, with your repayment options. Mm-hmm. However, if you are only eligible for private loans and you do have good credit, there are obviously benefits to taking advantage of lower interest rates and obviously shopping around for what works best for your individual situation if federal loans don't work for you. Yeah, very true. Brad, could you talk a little bit about how people access uh, federal loans? And this is something that people might have heard of, but um, what is FAFSA or what does that do? Sure. So FAFSA, uh, so FAFSA is a form that the federal government, the states, the colleges, and other organizations use to determine your expected family contribution, and and it awards you the financial aid. So by completing the FAFSA uh, should be your first step in college finance planning, and it's necessary to obtain many grants, scholarships, work-study programs, and federal student loans. So most people fill that out, usually their usually they're senior year of, of, uh, of high school, I think it's been so long, but yeah, it's their senior year of high school, uh, you fill that out, uh, and that kind of, and this form basically, this form basically tells the federal government how much money that they will give you in grants, scholarships, and <laughs> I, I just wanted to say if there are any non-traditional college goers here, it you want to apply before the first uh, academic year that you're going to attend. So if you've been out of school for a while and you're going to go back, you've got to apply before you try to get into school. Otherwise, you're not going to be eligible for a lot of types of aid. Um, and it's really important to time it and you have to do it annually. You can't just do it one and done. Sorry, I talked to a lot of people about FAFSA, and they don't know they have to do it every year, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a form that you definitely have to do every year because, you know, your family income could go up one year and it could go down one year. So, you know, obviously, you know, if, if the income goes up, then that means that uh, then that means basically that you're not going to be eligible for it for as many grants and everything else. Like that. Um, so the federal student aid, uh, which is part of the U.S. Department of Education, is the is the largest provider of student financial aid in the nation. Um, so at the Office of the Federal Student Aid, um, you know, they, they are the ones who actually help make the college education possible for, you know, you know, for the students. So they actually, 
they actually, you know, actually work with the, uh, work with all the FAFSA forms and they and they deal with all this. Um, so, thank you so much, Brad. Um, yeah. Another acronym that people may have heard of is FFEL, which stands for Federal Family Education Loan. I've heard some people call it FELP with a P at the end because they add the program into the acronym. And I know there haven't been any new loans under this program since 2010, but I've read there's as many as 11 million borrowers with outstanding FEL loans, which make up around 17% of that $1.7 trillion in student loan debt. Can you tell us a little bit about the FEL program since it still is impacting so many uh, consumers over a decade after those last balances were distributed and what the difference between commercial FFEL and educational FFEL is? Yeah, so the Phelps student loans are federally backed loans that were originally funded by private companies. Um, but the, like you did say, the Phelps program did end with the 2009-2010 academic year to make way for the direct loans, which are now all the loans that are actually being issued nowadays to, uh, to all the consumers. Once that uh, once 2009-2010 academic year ended, some of those loans were purchased by the federal government, and the rest of those loans uh, remained with the private companies. So the ones that were purchased by the federal government are now the education department-owned FEL, uh, FEL loans. The other ones that, uh, that actually stayed with the private companies are the commercially-owned FEL. If you have federal student loans, from 2010 or earlier, they are likely FEL loans. Uh, some, some outstanding FEL loans are held by the federal government that are called uh, ed, ed held FEL loans or the education department owned. And, uh, but most are still privately owned companies like Nelnet and FIA. There is a way for you to go figure out whether you have a commercially held loan or you have a, a education department owned. Uh, you can either go to studentaid.gov or you can always call the Federal Student Aid Information Center, which is 1-800-433-3243. One of the reasons why this, why this was really important uh, because of last year when, when the CARES Act was passed was all of the federally owned education department owned loans fell under the CARES Act, which meant that they were not being charged interest and you did not have to make those payments uh, for those particular loans. All of the commercially held loans, uh, they did not fall under that uh, under the CARES Act and they did not receive the same protections as the, as the federally owned ones. Yeah, I think it's really important for borrowers to understand which kind of loans they actually do hold. And I, you know, just talking about that, you know, I, I went to college in 2009 and I don't think I realized, I just always knew that I, like, I think mine ended up as ed purchased. So like ed education department loans, but I don't think I realized at the time that, it, you know, it was ran through that program. It was just later on, I found that out. So it's, it's definitely important to know the difference of, of what you got if, um, if you have those type of loans, but that's a good breakdown of like the federal loans that are offered, Brad, uh, what kind of private loan options are available to borrowers also? And what are income share agreements? These are like, I, some people may have heard of them, but these are kind of newer, I think, loan product offers. Um, how, are those, how are those income share agreements different from conventional, more conventional loans as well? Sure, so let's start with the private loan. So unlike federal loans, federal student loans, private student loans do not offer standard options and interest rates. So your credit and that of a co-signer, uh, if you have one, will affect what types of loan you can qualify for and the interest rate that you will receive. So, you know, private lenders may offer different types of loans uh, depending on the degree that you're pursuing. Uh, you know, some of the loan types can affect your loan amount, the interest rate, and the repayment terms. So, you know, depending on whether it's like a community college or technical training, whether it's undergraduate school loan, a graduate or professional school loans, or a parent loan, uh, you know, where the parents are picking up some of the portion that they did not want to have their, you know, where they didn't actually want to have place all the burden on their actual, on their kids as well. 
So when it comes to private loans, you know, the, the, uh, the length of the loan period can range anywhere from five to 20 years. Um, typically, these are shorter loans. However, they, you know, they, they will have higher monthly payments. You know, interest rates could vary. You know, if you have a longer, longer length, you know, say you do 20 years, obviously, uh, obviously you'll have a lower payment, but you will have a higher interest rate. So, you know, that is one of the trade-offs. There are different, you know, when it comes to interest rates, you know, um, lenders offer to student loans with either a fixed interest rate or a adjustable interest rate. You know, the fixed interest rate, it's where your interest rate is set when you take out the loan and it won't change. You know, the rate you lock in can depend on market rates as well as your lender, your credit, and your loan terms. So in general, you know, a fixed rate is a better long-term option for financing your education, some people say. You know, but, you know, you are able to plan for future payments without worrying that, you know, without worrying that the actual interest rates may, uh, may actually increase over time, which could actually make your payments go up. So that's one of the, you know, that, that's one of the ways. Uh, or you could do a variable interest rate, you know, where you could start out at 2% and then the following year could go 3 and then 4 and 5, you know, just keeps going up and up and there, you know, and you may start out lower you know, initially with making payments, but, you know, uh, your payments could go up, you know, a lot higher over time. The income share agreements, that is something still really new to the actual student loan world. And, you know, we're still dabbling in, in this whole area of it. Uh, so an income share agreement is basically, basically you are, say you borrow $30,000 for, for your student loans. So when you borrow that amount, you know, usually the length of term to, uh, to repay these loans are five years. So once you're done with your, once you're done with the education, they base your, they base your repayment uh, payments back to them based on what your actual income is. So say, I think they're usually anywhere between, I think they're around 5% of what your income is, five to 10%. It's different from every company. So, you know, say you make $100,000 coming out, you know, so basically, you know, you know, you're going to be paying back $5,000. So it all depends as to, you know, what kind of job that, you know, what kind of job that you're going to have. So obviously, you know, if you make more money coming out of college, you're going to be making higher payments. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a gamble in a sense for the companies that they that they are actually lending this money to people, you know, because, you know, you may come out of college and you may not be able to find a job, you know, you know, they actually do have that written in there that, you know, if you don't have it, you know, if you don't have a job and you, or say you say your income's less than $30,000, you don't have to make the payments right then, you know, but basically in essence, they're just pushing your actual loan back until you can start making the payments. It's still right. really new, so we're still not completely sure how all of this works. <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely different from conventional loan types where, you know, you get a fixed amount of money and then you have to repay that exact fixed amount of money. I think here is where, you know, a company agrees to pay for your education costs, whatever it is, and you make an agreement with that lender to pay a fixed percentage of your future income back for that for that loan. Brad, in the, in, in the case of ISAs, mm -hmm. does the lender look at the borrower's income potential within their field of study as a component of whether or not they lend to them? That would be my assumption that they're, that they're probably only doing this for certain, like certain degrees. Mm -hmm. You know, we haven't done an, a big enough deep dive on this to figure out you know, you know, are they only offering this for, say, doctors, engineers, you know, some of the higher paying jobs coming out, you know, I, to me, you know, just thinking about this personally, you know, if I was running a company, I'm not going to be offering this to, you know, one of the lower incomes coming out, because, you know, you're not going to be recouping the same amount of money as you would if you were offering it to the higher income people, you know, the higher degrees coming out. So we haven't done a big enough deep dive on that to see, you know, are they only doing, you know, X, Y, and Z, you know, you know, these three degrees or, or is it more broader? So yeah, I've, I've read about it. Um, 
I've read about ISAs with companies that are like putting together um, near peer lenders, like they connect potential borrowers with high income, wealthy individuals. Mm -hmm. And then there's this component of mentoring along with that because the the lender wants to get their money back and the best way to do that is to prepare the borrower for their career yeah i mean so it's a, it's a good idea <laughs> it that from that perspective it is it is interesting from a professional development standpoint but there is a lot of risk there on both sides oh there yeah, is yeah i think oh. it's oh I'll sorry go ahead you. brad well, one of the biggest uh, one of the biggest uh, places that actually does this is Purdue University. Uh, uh, they actually have their own uh, ISA program that they've been running now for uh, for a couple of years. Yeah, I think these are really interesting products. I just wanted to kind of highlight what they are for people who may not have heard of them before, because um, it's I think kind of a newer student loan product. Um, but yeah, there's some. I think there's some risk to both sides, to the lender and the borrower um, with these. Obviously it's risky for the lender if the, if the student never goes on to get a job in that field and can't repay back the full loan. And it's a little bit risky for the borrower too if they end up getting an awesome job out of, out of college mm -hmm. and then they might end up paying back more than what the education actually costs. So um, yeah, that's, that's definitely one, one of the downfalls at it, it, you know. Sometimes you could pay more than what you borrowed. Sometimes you could pay less. You know, that's kind of the, I hate to say gamble in a sense, but, you know, it is. I mean, because unfortunately with the traditional loans, when you come out, you're going to know what your payments are, you know, irregardless. Okay, I'm going to be making $300 a month on my, on my student loans. Whereas ISA, you know, I can make a $100 payment or I can make a $1,000 payment. You know, there's a huge swing when it comes to that. I think this will be a great, future podcast topic when you've learned more about it brad <laughs> there's some more evidence to discuss there right. is some possible legislation coming out about <gasps> that hopefully we will know more later <laughs> all right so a lot of borrowers have lot multiple loans multiple student loans um which can be kind of difficult to manage sometimes so some people might be interested in either consolidation or refinancing. Brad, can you talk about the differences between consolidation and refinancing loans? Sure. So if you're consolidating loans, basically say you have five loans and you want to consolidate it down to one loan. So you just have one loan and that's it. If you want to refinance it, say you have say you have different interest rates on them and you're just refinancing them into one, uh, one interest rate, you know, you're still going to have the five loans, but you, you know, but you know, but you're going to have the, a better interest rate for you. That's actually going to help uh, reduce your payments. There are some good, uh, good reasons to consolidate your loans though. Uh, it, you know, it kind of depends on, do you have only federal loans? Do you have federal and private? So there's pros and cons to it. Uh, some of the reasons why you would want to consolidate your loans uh, could be is based, like I said, you know, if you currently have federal loans that that are with different loan servicers, you know, consolidation can greatly simplify, you know, your loan repayment by, you know, by giving you one single loan with just one monthly bill. You know, consolidation can lower your monthly payments by giving you a longer period of time, possibly though, to repay your loans. And uh, and if you consolidate loans other than direct loans. Uh, consolidating consolidating all your loans into direct loan may give you access to additional income-driven repayment plan options, as well as the public service loan forgiveness program um, as well. You'll be able to switch any variable rate, rate loans uh, to a fixed interest rate as well. You know, that's definitely one of the good things. However, though, there are some, uh, some cons to actually consolidating, consolidating your loans as well. You know, because uh, consolidation usually increases the period of time that you have to repay your loans, you will likely be making more payments and you could pay more in interest than you would be if you were just, you know, making your regular payments. So that is a downfall. When you consolidate your loans, any outstanding interest on the loans that, that you consolidate becomes part of the original principal balance on your consolidated loans, which means that the interest may accrue 
on a higher principal balance than might have been the case if you had not consolidated. And uh, consolidation may also cause you to lose certain borrower protections, such as interest rate discounts, principal rebates, or some loan cancellation benefits that are associated with the current loans. If you're uh, paying your current loans under an income-driven repayment plan, or if you've made qualifying payments toward the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program, consolidating your current loans uh, will cause you to lose credit for any payments made toward the Income-Driven Repayment Forgiveness, or PSLF. So I know that's a lot of information there. <laughs> I think it's important to clarify that consolidation, direct consolidation loan is a federal loan and mm -hmm. um, only federal loans and, and some federally attached loans would be eligible to consolidate into one payment. Mm -hmm. um, whereas refinancing is a private loan and you're basically taking out a new loan to pay the balances on loans that you already owe. You might get a lower interest rate. It might be higher. Kind of all depends on the individual lenders that you're, you're reaching out to. Um, since there's so many factors with the consolidation loans, we're going to link to more information on direct <laughs> consolidation loans in the show notes for sure. Yeah, well, we'll there'll be lots of resources <laughs> in the show notes for today's, uh, for today's show, um, because there's just so much information uh, out there on student loans and the servicers and the, you know, the protections and the repayment options. But I think that's a, that's a pretty good breakdown of the different types of loan products that are available to, to borrowers when they're trying to finance their education. Um, but let's switch gears a little bit and talk about some of the protections that are out there for student loan borrowers uh, and what rights they might have. Um, so Brad, could you speak a little bit about like student, student loan borrower rights or protections that they have? Yeah, so, so the federal student loan borrowers have a number of options to successfully manage student loan debt. You know, those options include the right to temporarily stop payments with a deferment or forbearance. Uh, they have the right to reduce payments by switching repayment plans, such as the income-based in, income driven repayment plans. Um, the pay as you earn plans, you know, there's a lot more than those, but those are, you know, some of the more popular ones. And uh, depending on your financial circumstances and other conditions, you know, uh, you know, you do have the right to loan cancellation, uh, discharge or forgiveness in some situations, as in, say, your college has has just completely shut down. Uh, there, uh, there has been, uh, there's many, many things going on with, uh, you know, getting your loans, your, your loans forgiven for, uh, for, for the college is closing up. Yeah. It seems like there's a, there's a lot of options when it comes to student loans. There's a lot of things, you know, that you can do to kind of protect yourself or help yourself with your student loan situation for, for people who want to know more about their student loans or might need help with their student loans. What kind of resources are out there for people, Brad? Yeah, so, you know, the number one thing that we always tell consumers is to always contact your servicer first, you know, because, you know, they're, uh, they're going to be the ones who can actually offer you all these, you know, all these resources, and they're the ones who can, who can actually help you out. However, though, you know, you know, things do come up where, you know, people just aren't getting anywhere with the, you know, uh, they're just not getting anywhere with the servicers. So, uh, so, are, so there are two ways to actually go file a complaint about these student loan servicers. You know, you can go file a complaint with the Illinois Office of Attorney General with the Consumer Protection Division, IDFPR, uh, and the Attorney General's Office. Uh, we work directly with them. Uh, so, so they actually, they are the ones in charge of actually intaking all of our, uh, all of our complaints. And they, and they actually handle the complaints for our agency. So they actually contact the company. They, they contact the consumers and they try to work out, you know, uh, they definitely work out the resolutions for the consumers. Um, you can also file a complaint with the CFPB, which is the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. So that is also another option as well, you know, where they also contact the companies, you know, say, hey, we've received this complaint. Can you please respond back to us and let us know, you know, you know what went wrong in a sense. We love the CFPB here. I think we've talked about <laughs> it on almost every, every uh, podcast. 
Do you know about how many student loan complaints uh, have been issued in Illinois? So I was able to get uh, more, you know, a, a actual number when it came to the CFPB versus the Illinois AG's office just because we're still, you know, we're still getting all the information. And it's very loosely. So at least with the, with the CFPB. So let's just say, so, so we started our program December 31st, 2018 was when was when the Student Loan Servicing Rights Act uh, became effective. So from December 31st, 2018 until March 30th, so yesterday of 2021. So the C so as a comparison, the CFPB had received 28,323 complaints, consumer complaints just for the state of Illinois alone. Out of that 28,000, there was only 581 consumer student loan complaints out of all of that. So I was kind of surprised that that's not a bigger number, but you know, you know, it is what it is. Well, and I bet fewer people are making complaints in the past year. Very true. <laughs> things things <laughs> being, being paused. Yes, very that's a good true. point. Uh, I also think there, there's a lot of different ways for borrowers to repay their loans. I think we've talked about a few, but can you kind of elaborate, Brad, on uh, what repayment options are available to people with federal loans and how that might be different from options for private or institutional loans? Yeah. So, you know, one of the one of, one of the first things to understand when it comes to a repayment on your federal student loans is, you know, is basically how you can save your time and money. So you need to find out what your repayment plan options are that are available to you, uh, when you must begin making the payments, how to make your payment, you know, how to pay off your loan faster, you know, if you're able to, and what to do if you have trouble making the payments. So you know, the standard, uh, so the most common repayment plan is the standard repayment plan. All borrowers are actually eligible for this plan. Payments are, are a fixed amount that ensures that, they, that your loans are paid off within 10 years, you know, anywhere from 10 to 30 years for consolidation loans. Another one of the repayment options for consumers is the extended repayment plan. You're only uh, the only people eligible for this is if you are a direct loan borrower and you must have more than thirty thousand dollars in outstanding direct loans. So a, a time frame for that is that the payments must be affixed or graduated, and will ensure that your loans are paid off within twenty five years. So that is a, another option as well. Um, you know, there's about eight to 10 different, you know, different <laughs> payment options, repayment plans out there available. One of the most popular ones is the income-based repayment plans. Um, so you must have a high debt relative to, to, your, uh, to your income. Um, so your monthly payments will either be 10 or 15% of your discretionary income, uh, depending on when you receive your first loans, but never more than you would have paid under the 10-year standard repayment plans. And the payments are recalculated each year and are based on your updated income and family size. And you must update your income and family size each year. If you are married, your spouse's income or loan debt will be considered only if you file a joint tax return on that, though. And any outstanding balance on your loan will be forgiven if you haven't repaid your loan in full after 20 years, 25 years, depending on when you received your first loans. So you must have, you might, you may have to pay income tax on any amount that is forgiven though. Now, I'm not sure if that's changed now with the recent, with the, with the recent, with the recent new legislation. I, I still haven't dug into that completely. Yeah, I think we'll touch on that, but that's a, I think it's like Brad said, there's a lot of different repayment options. There's eight to 10, there's right? Eight. I looked There's it up eight. right before we started eight. recording. Eight, exactly. eight repayment plans. <laughs> Just for federal loans. I I, think... There's numerous for private mm. loans. <laughs> so I will summarize the eight repayment plans available for direct loans or federal loans as of right now. There, there are eight. The de default one is standard repayment plan, which is 10 years. There's an extended plan as well. There are graduated plans, which could be a standard 10 years or extended up to 25 years. And then there's a whole slew of 
income-driven repayment plans. And don't worry, we're going to link in the show notes to all of the federal repayment plan options. <laughs> Thank you, Andrea. Yeah, that's a, that's a good breakdown. Yeah, there's like different types, but obviously you want to look at the different types that are available to you and then find out which one works best for your particular situation. Uh, Brad, I want to touch on something that you mentioned earlier too, um, the PS, PSLF, uh, our Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program. Could you tell us a, a little bit about this program and how it works? Sure. So the public service loan, uh, public service loan forgiveness program, uh, it forgives the remaining balance on, on your direct loans after you have made 120 qualifying monthly payments under a qualifying repayment plan while working full time for a qualifying employer. That's a lot of qualifying. <laughs> so to qualify for the PSLF. You must be employed by a U.S., a federal, a state, local, or tribal government, or non-for-profit organization. And you must work full-time for that agency or organization. You have to have direct loans or consolidate other federal loans into a direct loan. Uh, repay your loans under an income-driven repayment plan and make 120 qualifying payments. The key word in, the, in there is direct loans. So if you so if you were in school prior to 2010, you most likely did not have a direct loan. So if you have been making payments under under your current loans, then none of those payments would actually qualify towards this actual forgiveness program. I have a, a clarifying question, Brad. Yeah. What about standard repayment? What about my, my, does that count? Standard repayment does not, because if you're in standard repayment, you will pay off your loan within 10 years uh, either way. So, so you it would gets be complicated there. It does get complicated <laughs> because basically if you're in a standard repayment plan, you're going to pay off your loan in 10 years. So there's nothing to forget. So Except if you are in standard repayment for 10, for two years, and then you switch those mm -hmm. on-time payments in standard still count as on-time payments. Correct. The, towards PSLF. One thing that we've noticed is it's very, very important when you, you know, once you are employed by, you know, all these different companies and you have direct loans or you consolidated your other loans, other federal loans into a direct loan. So you have, you know, just one direct loan and you are in a income-driven repayment plan, there's all, all these qualifying <laughs> measures. If your payment is $100 a month, do not pay more than $100 a month. You have, yeah. to, make, you have to make the exact payment because the way that they, we've noticed companies doing it, say you pay $105 this month, $100 next month, $110 next month, they will put the $100 towards your qualifying payment the next month, they would only put the $5 in. The following month, they would only put the $100. You know, it's so once you're once you are locked into this, only make the exact amount of payments that that they are telling you to make. Do not make anything over that payment at all. Make the exact amount. That is one of Thank the most important things that we tell consumers all the time. Thank you, Brad. The other thing I wanted to ask is. I graduated with my bachelor's in 2008 and I only had direct loans. I didn't have fell loans. Oh, you got lucky. Yeah, I think it's because <laughs> my EFC was so, so low. <laughs> <laughs> so if you were in a boat where your EFC was super low and you graduated mm -hmm. before 2010, you might have had direct loans. So they might be in this boat. Could be direct loans. Uh, they've been around for a while, but they just not. They were not one of the most pr uh, uh, prolific uh, loan types out there. Thanks you for know, clarifying they, that. I mean, they had Perkins loans back in the days. They had Stafford loans. There was a lot of different loan types out there until about 2000. I think around about 2010 was when they kind of just knocked out all the other loans. Said we're only going to have one loan type going forward, which definitely makes it easier for the consumers. Yeah, that makes sense. I think there's been a lot of the, I think the public service student loan forgiveness program has been notable 
in that it hasn't the, the intention of the program was for people to go into public service and then because of that they can get their loans paid off but obviously i think we've seen in the news that over time not many people have met all of the qualifications for one reason or another and that's frustrated a lot of people as they've gone through the process but it's yeah the intent I mean, of the program is i think i think genuine um, and good to to forgive the loans of people who go into public service like like us three but uh, <laughs> yeah it hasn't yeah. worked out perfectly in practice well and yeah. it also depends on how much your loan debt is and how much you're being paid even in a public service role like i have lower loan amounts because i had other federal aid that was provided to me so when i got into my role i was it was easier for me to pay things off before 10 years than to try to maximize a public service loan forgiveness plan. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, definitely, you know, everyone has different incomes when they're coming out. So, you know, there's a lot of different factors, whether it's, you know, good for you or whether it's not, I mean, you know, sometimes you may not even qualify for it. As we've said, there's a lot of different ways. I mean, like Jake said, the intent of this program was really good, but I think once they've started going down the path of it, they've realized that there's been a lot of issues with it. Just, you know, with the whole direct loans itself has been a, you know, just because it, you know, people just hear, oh, you have to have a federal loan. So, you know, and then people say, oh, well, I got federal loan. So why don't I qualify for it? And once you dig into it and realize, you know, you don't have a direct loan, you have a fell loan or you have a Perkins loan or you have these other loans that, you know, you don't qualify for it. So, and, you know, you know, they started the program in 2000, gosh, was it 2007 or 2009? No, 2009, I believe, you know, so they said, you know, 10 years from this point, we will start forgiving these loans, you know, basically, you know, you know, you've been making 10 years of payments and I believe 2019, was when the first 10 year period came up. And there was a stat out there that said 99% of the people didn't have their loans forgiven. It was a kind of a misleading stat in a sense, just because of the fact that, you know, you know, within that 99% of the people who didn't have the, you know, who, who, who weren't, who didn't, who didn't have their loans forgiven just because either they didn't make the full payments, you know, they didn't have the correct loans, you know, and, a lot of these people didn't come to find out until after the 10 years, were, you know, after, after yeah, the 10 we years recently, were actually up. We recently got to the first, I think, round, you know, of people who had made 10 years of payments. And so mm -hmm. uh, I think the program is figuring out, you know, what issues people had going through the process and, you know, how that kind of held up some people. But uh, we'll, we'll just say on the podcast <laughs> that, you know, the public, the public service loan forgiveness program is an option for people. Uh, if they work yes. um, in a qualifying job and they meet all of the other qualifications. So yeah, we, we want to make sure we, we, we mentioned that as well. So along with all of these things that we've talked about regarding options for repayment or forgiveness, there are a lot of student loan protections. That was a big theme in the pandemic as well. The CARES Act that was passed in March of last year, 2020, had a lot of protections related to student loans. Could you tell us about those, Brad? Sure. So uh, when the CARES Act was established in, in March 2020, all of the federal loans and federal government-owned FEL loans did fall under the protections associated with the CARES Act. So what that means is that there is no payments required and there is 0% interest accruing on all the loans. So all payments that were made during the CARES Act were applied for, uh, they first applied them to any back due interest that was on the account balance. And then all the rest of the payments were applied directly to, to the principal balance. I know I've talked to a couple of consumers over this past year and they, and they've, and a couple of them just asked me, said, Hey, during this time, should I even make payments? My answer to, to them is it, it's a personal matter when it comes to people, just because everyone has different, di different circumstances when it comes to your, you know, to, uh, uh, to your earnings, to your, you know, to, uh, uh, to your actual money available to make, you know, different payments. I always told them if you are able to continue making your payments do just because that will actually pay off your actual student loans faster. 
Yeah, I can actually speak from experience on this one. I was fortunate enough to be employed throughout the pandemic. And, you know, I had to face the option of, you know, whether I would continue to make my payments um, or not. Um, but since I was in a position where I was able to, to afford my student loan payments, I, I was able to keep making them. And, you know, that helped me reduce my interest balance and, and, and reduce my principal balance on my loans as well. So it was helpful, but it, you know, like it depended on your own circumstance. I, like I said, mm -hmm. I was fortunate enough to keep my job throughout the, this last year. Um, millions of other people were not. And so, yeah. you know, the CARES Act was definitely important in, in making sure that those people weren't just racking up interest throughout the year when they weren't able to make their payments. Well, and it also provides flexibility for people that might be employed, but if they got COVID and they lost income because they had to take time off to recover, then mm. you can skip a month and it's not going to hurt you like it would otherwise. Yeah, very true. Yeah, absolutely. It provided a lot of flexibility for people to make the decision that was best for themselves. Absolutely. Brad, I wanted to ask also, did any of those protections extend to borrowers with private loans as well? Uh, unfortunately, it did not. So if you held a commercially commercially held fell loan or any private loans, um, you did not get those protections. However, though, there was a, a group of states. Um, there, was, there was nine states that, that actually worked together. It was the states of California, Colorado, Connecticut, Massachusetts, New Jersey, Vermont, Virginia, Washington, and the state of Illinois, we all kind of got together and we wanted to get um, some relief options for the private student loans and the commercially held FELP loans. Um, so, we, so, we, uh, so we got together starting in early, early April of 2020 and we was able to get some relief options for those, um, for those borrowers. So uh, we was able to provide them with a minimum of 90 days of forbearance, uh, waiving of late payment fees, ensuring that no borrower is subject to negative credit rating, uh, seizing debt collection lawsuits for 90 days, and working with borrowers to enroll them in other borrower assistance programs, such as any kind of income-based repayment plan options as well. Thank you, Brad. <laughs> it's really helpful for all the consumers out there with private or commercially held self loans. So, But Congress just passed another stimulus package, the American Rescue Plan, does anything in that package or any other recent legislation address student loans? So uh, one of the uh, sections of the American Rescue Plan talks about a tax-free status for student loan forgiveness. So uh, all types of the student loan forgiveness will be tax-free through December 31st of 2025. So this includes the loan forgiveness after 20 or 25 years in an income-driven repayment plan since most other forms of student loan forgiveness were already tax-free. So only borrowers who have been repaying their federal student loans and income contingent repayment, ICR, uh, will qualify for, for forgiveness before December 30th, 2025. Borrowers uh, in the income contingent repayment will, with just undergraduate loans, may switch into their revised pay-as-you-earn, or repay, as they're called, uh, repayment plan to qualify for loan forgiveness after 20 years instead of 20, 25 years. So more than 100,000 borrowers should qualify for this. Uh, the tax-free status is likely to be extended or made permanent prior to the expiration, but you know there is no guarantee on that for sure. You know we're you know it's just what what we're hoping for sure. Employers may be able to employers may be able to use the tax-free status to provide employees with more tax-free student loan repayment assistance as well. You know, that is, that's also another option as well for, uh, for the company. Thank you, Brad. Yeah, thank you, Brad. That is, I think that's, that's a good provision of the, of the rescue plan. And I'll say we don't want to speculate here about something that may or may not happen that people might have heard of, of whether or not the government's going to forgive a bunch of student loans. So we don't want to speculate here on whether or not that's going to happen because no legislation is passed or no politicians have said they're going to do that yet, but this theoretically could be used to cover other types of student loan forgiveness if the government passes any other types of student loan forgiveness. Now, those, if, if, if anything is passed, that would only apply to federal loans. So that's one thing we need to make sure that the consumers do understand. 
Gotcha. Yeah, definitely important to note that as well. Are there any other trends that you see with student loans or borrower protections, Brad, that we should highlight? So there are, um, there's, I mean, there's always in, uh, trends that are going on up there. There's some bad trends and, and good trends. So uh, we'll start with the bad trends first and then we'll make it into a, a better, happier ending. Uh, so, so let's say back in the year 2007, uh, the composition of a household debt uh, consisted of 4%, which was student loans. You go up to 2014, the student loan debt uh, went to 10% of the household debt. And, and in the year 2020, student loans are up to 11% of the actual household debt. So it kept going up each, you know, every, every couple of years, you know, a couple of percentages kept going up. You know, there are more students now taking out loans uh, just because due to the uh, rising college costs, you know, colleges keep, you know, keep going, college costs keep going up every, every other year or so. So, you know, more loans are being taken out. Uh, one of the more alarming trends that I've seen is that, you know, senior student loans continue to rise as well. And by that, I mean, you know, um, you know, you know, the cripple, you know, the student debt is not just inclusive to a young population of 20 to 30 year old, you know, in fact, people aged 60 to 69 years old have as much debt as people in their 30s, averaging, uh, you know, $35,000 in 2018. So that's kind of, uh, kind of scary as well that people in their 60s, you know, still have college debt. And, you know, you know and, and, and the fact, you know, and the fact that that, that that amount, you know, keeps increasing, you know, you know, it definitely makes it, you know, worrisome as well. Those are some of the bad trends. You know, some of the good trends are is that there seems to be more employers out there that actually are offering offering student loan repayment benefits. So, so, so say employer um, student loan contributions are a type of an employee benefit uh, where the employer pays a fixed amount every month on behalf of their employee in order to assist them in, in paying back their student loan debt. So these programs are still in their uh, are still in their infancy, but the share of the employers offering these benefits has increased to eight percent in 2019 from only four percent in 2018. So in the past, the focus was on providing healthcare benefits, but with the introduction of the Employer Participation and Repayment Act that was passed in February 2019, uh, which would allow employers to give tax-free student loan assistance up to five thousand two hundred fifty dollars annually per employee, you know, we hope to see this benefit become mainstream uh, more in the future. So, uh, you know, the adoption is faster uh, among small and medium-sized organizations who are also using this perk as a competitive edge to, you know, attract people to come to their actual, uh, to actually come work for their companies. Another good trend is that, you know, borrowers are taking advantage of the lower interest rates due to the due to the COVID nineteen economic fallout, just because of you know the uh, the interest rates now uh, have now fallen to a all time historic low. So you know for people who are able to refinance your loans, you're getting a lot better rate than what you would have two years ago for sure. One thing I've noticed because I track undergraduate debt within the state of Illinois for my institutions is that over the past several years, um, bachelor degree recipients have borrowed less mm -hmm. um, and it's kind of leveled out. So that's also a positive trend that you're not, even though the cost of education continues to go up, people are getting more creative with their funding options to reduce their, their net loan debt when they graduate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point, Andrea. I think, yeah, I think, I think financial planning around student loans has become more prevalent as well because the cost of going to college has been rising for so long. Uh, it's, it's definitely more of a, a important part of family financial planning um, that people take into consider, consideration more often these days. Uh, but thanks for highlighting all that, Brad. Uh, so something else we've also talked about um, on our show before, and this may be one of the more unfortunate things that we have to talk about, um, but are scams. So we know there's scams all across the financial world. Are there any in the student loan world or any type of scams that student loan borrowers should be particularly looking out for that they should watch out for? 
Yeah, there's uh, we've seen a growing number in the past three years or so of these companies that are popping up and they're saying that, hey, we'll guarantee that we can lower your income or not income, we can lower your payments. Hey, we will fill out the paperwork for you to get a, you know, you know, to be put into the income, um, you know, income based repayment plans. You know, hey, we'll fill out your FAFSA forms. We'll do all this stuff for you. It's something that, you know, do not uh, sign up for these companies. Do not, uh, you know, do not give them any money or whatsoever. It's it's something that that's that is being hard to track just because these companies pop up for six six to nine months and under one name. Uh, once they have kind of once they've been caught onto you know like someone's reported them to the BB BBB Better Business Bureau or a AG's office, uh, then they close down real fast and then they'll open up under another name. So. You know, borrowers have reported receiving phone calls, emails, letters, and or texts offering them relief from their federal student loans or warning them that the student loan forgiveness programs would would end soon. Usually the so-called student loan debt relief companies offering these types of services don't offer any relief at all, zero. And often they're just fraudsters who are are basically after your money. So many of these student loan debt relief companies charge a fee to provide service services that you can actually take care of yourself for free by contacting your loan servicer. So at no cost, the U.S. Department of Education and their federal loan servicers can help you by lowering your monthly loan payments. They can change your repayment plans. They can consolidate multiple federal student loans. Uh, they can postpone your monthly payments while you're furthering your education or if you're unemployed. And uh, they can see if you qualify for loan forgiveness or other programs as well. So, you know, it's definitely something to just contact your servicer and they can do all of these items for you for, for free. I really like the ones that uh, target incoming students and say, hey, we can get you lots of grant money if you pay us $25 and give us all your information. <laughs> the form that they would fill out, if they were even going to do it, is called the free application for federal student aid. Is in the form name. <laughs> We actually, uh, we've actually heard of these companies where they have people give them their logins to their, uh, to their individual accounts, and mm. they would go in to these people's accounts, like just for that, like they would go into their servicer accounts and they would like change their address out there. So basically all the mail would come to that company instead of going directly to the consumers as well. There's been a lot of bad stuff that's been going on that we, you know, we always stress these people, you know, there's a reason why, you know, you know, why we don't promote any of these companies, <laughs> you know, you know, contact your servicer first and foremost. Yeah, we've said it before in relation to other scams, but when it comes to things like this, especially government related, uh, or federal government related items, the, they're not going to be asking you for money to do these things. Like, like Andrea said, the FAFSA stands for a free application um, for federal student aid. So just be always be wary of things that ask you for money, especially up front before they do anything for you. Um, mm-hmm. And you always want to be wary of companies like that and be sure not to give your information to them. I um, was a target for, you can get all of your student loans forgiven, forgiven two years after I had paid them all off. So <laughs> that's a big red flag. That that's, that's, that's similar to the, uh, well, I still the get car warranty. multiple ones a day. Yeah, the, the car <laughs> warranty. I think I everybody's. Get them, I get them on my work cell phone, which is even worse because. Uh... <laughs> yeah, Brad and, I, Brad and I have work cell phones to the state of Illinois. And we probably both get double damage because I get them on my personal cell phone and my work cell yeah. phone. Oh, the state sure. of Illinois needs to start paying their car, their other car warranties up. Yeah. <laughs> mine's even, yeah. My car is 18 years old. It doesn't have a warranty. All right. Moral of the story we... is to look out for, look out for scams. Just protect yourself. Protect yourself. Before we let you go, Brad, are there any final thoughts for our listeners? 
Uh, I mean, I, I just want to thank you guys for having me on. You know, it was a pleasure being on to be able just to give, you know, just a just a little bit of information. I mean, there is a ton of information out there for the consumers. You know, we always we you know, I always try to stress to people is to, you know, try to do your own research when it comes to this thing. You know, there you know, there's lots of great resources out there to go get the information on, you know. So you know, sometimes it's, you know, sometimes it's in your best interest to, to actually go do, you know, to go do your, uh, go do your own research and to get a little information, you know, before you actually call these actual services as well. So, you know, we're, you know, you know, we are out here working for the consumers, you know, we want to make sure that they are treated fairly and correctly. So, you know, we, you know, we continue to do that every day. And we appreciate that very much, Brad. We need regulators, people to enforce compliance uh, with legislative changes and whatnot. So we definitely appreciate your very hard work protecting consumers in Illinois from student loan issues with, with servicers, with scam artists, all kinds of things. So for our listeners, if you have student loans or you're thinking about taking on student loan debt, We're going to highlight a lot of the reputable resources that um, we've talked about in the show notes. Uh, So be sure to look out for that. Even before you Google, some of the the good resources are from Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has some stuff. I'm sure IDFPR has some stuff. I have some stuff. Um, Studentaid.gov has some stuff all on proper student loan management and uh, things to be aware of when you borrow. So we'll make sure that we have lots of resources for you. Yeah, absolutely. We'll make everything available in the show notes. And I just want to echo what Andrea said. Uh, Thank you, Brad, for looking out for student loan borrowers. And thanks for coming on the show today and sharing your knowledge with us. There's obviously been a lot of changes to student loans in the last year, and there could be more to come in the future. Um, So to our listeners, be sure to keep an eye out for that if you do have student loans. But on our next episode, we're going to be tackling home ownership and going over important things to know for first-time homebuyers with my colleagues from the Illinois Division of Real Estate. Um, So be sure to tune in and check that one out. And as always, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Google Play and share with your friends or family. Talk to you next time. Thanks. Thanks.